Awesome. What a great song. What a great song. You may probably hear that some more in the next couple weeks as we're beginning a new little mini-series called Rescue. We're going to get back into the book of Luke, so open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. You find that on page 1215 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 22. We're coming to the end of the Gospel of Luke, and we have studied our way through this long and complex chapter, and we've taken the summer off, and now we're back to finish up. And so we're going to talk about the things that the Savior endured to rescue us. And so this will be the first part, really the beginning of the end, I've called it, Rescue Part 1. Now, I want you to just begin this morning uh, because there's always a, a great danger when you're we're looking at a passage of Scripture that mentally we feel like we are very familiar with, that we feel confident that we understand what this is about and that we've heard this before and we've read this before. And so it's something it's not going to uh, be new news as we just read the Scripture. And the danger is that we would just sort of uh, settle in and think, well, I've got this, I I know all about this. Trust me, uh, you don't. You don't. And here's how I know. Because I have, I told the uh, folks on Wednesday night that I feel like I've spent all week um, just watching the, the beating of Christ in the Passion of the Christ movie and then rewinding it and watching it again and rewinding it and watching it again and rewinding it and watching it again. And, you know, just to see it one time, it's pretty much all you can stand. I'm, I remember when the movie came out and when uh, before the movie, people are chattering and talking. And then as soon as the movie's over, you can hear a pin drop. No one says a word because you've been so impacted by what you've just seen. But once is all you can take. You can't sit there and watch that over and over and over, just that part over and over and over. But that's what happens when you read this passage out of Luke 22, as Luke is describing uh, what's happened to our Savior. And so we, we really need to sort of get our, our hearts prepared to, to dive into this. We need to really ask the Lord to, to soften us up and to give us ears to hear so that we can see uh, what the Savior endured on our behalf and our rescue uh, in a fresh and new way. So we pray with me and let's ask God to help us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truly the most precious possession we have. Thank you for uh, just its perfection and inerrancy. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, Lord, and we receive it with great joy this morning. We confess that we need your help, Lord, so please may the Spirit of God come and move in our midst that he might give us ears to hear and hearts that would receive it, that, Father, this seed would fall on good soil this morning and that life change would occur in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You know, I want you to just think about how in the last few weeks we've talked about how we are created in the image of God and how important it is to really understand that and to realize that all of the characteristics and the nature of God uh, bear witness in us and creation in some way, shape or form. And uh, nowhere is that more apparent than in the, the justice of God and how that affects our heart. In other words, we, because we're created in the image of God, have this a great distaste for injustice. When injustice, especially when it's perpetrated against us or somebody that we love, we just rise up against it in such a uh, a mighty way. Now, sometimes it can be just little things, you know. I mean, I, I confess that uh, I have uh, waiting issues. 
is what I call them. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not really your number one guy to spend time with in a car when I'm in a traffic jam. It's not really my top moment in life. And uh, there's those times where I'm uh, sitting in traffic, which uh, really, praise God, I think that's what God, when God delivered me uh, from seminary, he just delivered me from Louisiana drivers is really what happened. And so I would sit on the interstate trying to get back to the land of plenty and uh, with these insane drivers, and I would be sitting in traffic and forever, and we're not moving anywhere, and the sun's baking down, and then suddenly some guy just starts driving down the shoulder of the interstate. Now, maybe in the stillness of my mind, I would think, you know, Lord, just make his engine blow up now. Just flatten all four of his tires. Just randomly his car veers off in a ditch and an alligator comes out and eats him. I mean, it's so annoying that you're sitting there and you, and part of it is because I want to do that. But I'm, I, I obey the law. And so I sit there and I sit there and I wonder. And just the injustice of someone not having to sit there. I actually was standing in line in uh, one of my favorite stores, Dollar General, which is made basically for the men of America so that we can just go in and get cheap junk instantaneously, fast as we want, and out the door we go. I mean, it's the, really the perfect shopping experience for me. So I, can, I could be fine if all I had was a Dollar General. I think I could be, I might not be healthy, but I could be fine. So I'm so Dollar General, which I like, you know, and I and I'm so grateful that there's one, you know, basically next door to everywhere I've ever been now. So you can just pull over anywhere and there's a Dollar General. So I'm standing there and uh, this one particular time something was wrong with the system. You know, I'm thinking I'm standing there and I'm holding a case of bottled water. And I'm about two people back and this lady's up there and she's having all kinds of problems and it's just going on and on and on. And everybody that comes in, I'm thinking, don't come in, go to the next one. It's only a block away. And they're coming in and the line starts to bend around and go. And I'm standing, I'm holding this water and I could put it down, but uh, I don't know, maybe it's a pride issue and I'm holding this water here and I'm standing here and I'm just thinking, this is really ridiculous. And it goes on and on. And suddenly... This little old lady who, you know, she's getting her, her groceries together or whatever she's getting and she comes over there and she just like gets right in front of me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and I look at the 12 people behind me and I'm going, huh, uh, okay. I'm, I mean, who does that? Just right, just right there. Just okay. Like I'm so... I just smile, I look at her, and I just think, well, God bless her. And uh, the guy behind me says, kind of leans over and says in my ear, he goes, I know that bothered you. So I gently turned around and said, I'm a pastor. I can't say anything. But we, we are just born to desire justice. There's just something inside of us. And so 
no matter what it is, when we, uh, when we feel like there's been some injustice perpetrated because we're created in the image of God, we have this deep desire for things to be made right. And as we've talked about how we have a soul that is made by God to be reflective, and so it reflects out whatever is in it, and we're created so that as Jesus is within us, He reflects out to all those who see us. The problem is, is that the reflective nature of our soul oftentimes is dented up by sin. And you know what happens to a mirror when it gets dented? It looks like one of the mirrors at the carnival that makes everything look all funny because it's got a dent in it. And so sometimes our heart gets dented by uh, things that have happened to us and by injustices that have been perpetrated towards us. And it, and it begins to uh, maybe disfigure or maybe, you know, just make obscure that which is supposed to shine out of us because we're wounded by this injustice in some way. And when we're hurt deeply, and and I'm not making light, I'm not talking about somebody cutting in front of you in line or somebody going around when you're uh, stuck in traffic. I'm talking about when you've been hurt deeply, personally, when somebody has done something uh, against you personally, perpetrated some evil, and it's greatly impacted your life. And it, uh, as I was... Uh, preparing for last week's message about children. I was going through all the statistics of global hunger and all those things. You know, I came across the reality that in our very own country in this day and age that one in four girls is uh, sexually abused and one in five boys. That That is a staggering reality to me. And I realize that uh, just by sheer percentages that I'm talking to many people this morning who have been uh, greatly wounded, maybe in that way or maybe in another way, but wounded nonetheless. And it, there's something in us that knows that it's wrong. And what happens is we desire vengeance. We have affixed some debt or some price to what's happened, and we want vengeance for this. And, and again, I want you to understand that the desire within you for vengeance is not a bad desire. It's a desire given to you by God, a God of vengeance. But it's the way in which we respond to this desire for vengeance that is the problem. And so we we need to look with a fresh set of eyes at at how God is a God of justice. And just some simple illustrations before we jump into the text from Scripture for you to see this about the Lord. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 and you see where Cain murders his brother Abel. And then the statement is made by God that the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What does that mean? That means that God is saying this injustice is, is crying out to me, that he, he is a God of, of justice and holiness and vengeance is saying this will not go undone, that this continual un, this unju- injustice is crying out from the ground to me and that I recognize that. And when God establishes the, the rule of life for his people, In Deuteronomy chapter 16, it's interesting how God lays out uh, principles of justice. And if you studied with us through the book of Leviticus on Wednesday nights, you got to see this a, a phenomenal picture of the foundational nature of God's justice. But in Deuteronomy 16, the Lord says this, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God will give you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow 
what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That is the nature of the God whom we serve. And so when we get to Luke 22, when we get down here to the end where Jesus is about to be uh, tried in this, in this mock clown trial, if you will, where every rule is broken or bent, that every possible uh, established way of justice that God has put forth is cast aside and just the sheer... Uh, depravity of man is on display in their anger and hatred towards God. Look with me in Luke 22. Let's go down to verse 63. Now, remember, we've studied uh, where Jesus has uh, celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He said that there's one among you who will betray me. Judas has already betrayed him in the garden, kissed him. He's been taken by this mob. And now we begin to read in Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Now I want you to just think for a second about Jesus... The Son of God, the preeminent creator and sustainer of all things. Just just begin to run through in your mind all the things that the scriptures that pop into your mind about the greatness and the magnitude of the character and nature of Jesus Christ. The God of the universe in flesh here among sinful men come to save the rebels who were stealing his glory. All of the, the glory of God represented in Jesus Christ right there blindfolded and being beaten. There's Jesus. Maybe you could close your eyes this morning and imagine that you are being tortured by a mob. You're being punched in the face, punched in the jaw. You're being hit across the head. You're being kicked. You're being mocked. You know, he's blindfolded. He can't see which direction it's coming from. And they're just beating him mercilessly over and over and over. And then they begin to mock him and say they would punch him. And then they would say, now tell us who it was that hit you. Why don't you prophesy for us there, Jesus, since you are God, since you know everything. And this beating goes on and on and on and on all night long. And as the mob of men, I'm sure they were jeering and laughing as they were finding such enjoyment over the the brutal beating of an utterly and completely innocent man, even even if they didn't recognize his deity, they knew that he had done nothing to deserve such treatment. And yet they beat him and they beat him. And he says nothing. The power of the universe within the palm of his hand. Think of, just, just try to put yourself in that position. Think of the vengeance that just roars up in your heart as you begin to imagine what that must have been like. Innocent and yet mercilessly beaten for hours and hours and hours. And it shows the cruelty, the extreme, unbelievable cruelty of sinful men and what what we're capable of. Now I want you to see the, the coercion, the coercion that's, that goes on display. Look at verse 66. And as soon as it was day... You understand, he was taken from the garden. 
And it's just as if Luke just assumes, well, you understand. This went on and on and on, and now it's day. And so after being beaten all night, now it's day, and the, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes, they came together and they led him into their council saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they, they all said, Are you the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now understand who this is that Jesus is having dialogue with. This represents the Sanhedrin. This is the the ruling religious body over the Jewish people. It's made up of the Sadducees who are the most powerful group of men. They control the, the position of the high priest and the Pharisees. And they all come together and they make the Sanhedrin. And they sit on this... Uh, this ruling body, if you will, and they handle all of the internal Jewish uh, matters. And so here are the most religious people in the nation. Here are the people who have prided themselves on the ultimate knowledge of the Old Testament and the teachings of God and the ways of God. And, and after a night of beating and after a night of brutality and bloodshed, they begin to interrogate and coerce Jesus. They're, they want Him to confess, are you saying that you're God? You know, there are people in cults who will come to your house and knock on your door and want to talk to you and hand you their literature who deny the fact that Jesus ever said that He was God. But the only thing that they really uh, need to understand is that they don't read the Bible because even in their tainted Bible, it is clear as a bell. Jesus made no apologies about being God. And so here he uses his favorite uh, name for himself and he calls him, he calls him, he says that the son of man, that, that, that uh, title, it comes from Daniel chapter seven, where the prophecy of the coming Messiah uh, the scripture says in Daniel 7:13, and behold, one like the son of man coming on clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days or God, the father, and they brought him near before him. And so Jesus uh, takes this title because he knows that all the people that are interrogating him are very familiar with Daniel and the prophetic writings in Daniel chapter seven. And so he uses that and he says hereafter that I will sit at the right hand of the power of God that trust me, you beat me now. And I bleed now, and you mock and jeer me now. But it won't last. It won't last, but you won't heed. And then secondly, they say, Are you then the Son of God? To which he answers, I am. I am the Son of God. You know, if you think about it, we... We looked at uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and we, we know that, the, the, that everyone is waiting for the Messiah. And that you don't mince words. In other words, the, the title Christ and the Messiah and all, the, these aren't mysterious to the Jewish people. Remember the dialogue between Jesus and the woman at the well? And the Samaritan woman said to him in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. 
who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So in other words, the the Jewish people recognize that when somebody says that I am the Son of Man, or I am the Son of God, or I am Christ, or I am the Messiah, they understand the implications of what that means. They understand where those that phraseology comes from. They understand everything that the Old Testament has said in preparation for this coming one. And so we see the cruelty. We see this coercion to get him to, to say yet again. As if they're, you see, they have no intention of giving him a, a trial that's according to any uh, laws of the land. They give him no defense. They give him no public opportunity. They just, they're just going through the motions. They, they beat him all night and now they're just going to try to get him to say he's God so that they have something uh, else to go on. And so now we see the corruption. So they bring him to Pilate. Thirdly, the corruption. Now, understand who Pilate is. Pilate is a, is a Roman leader and he's appointed over Judea. And so he, he, he sits, he possesses this seat for the Roman government. And really, he, his, his base was in Caesarea Philippi. But because it was the Passover time, the time of the feast, he was, he was here in the city to look good before the Jewish people. His job was to keep the peace among the Jews and for them not to rise up against the Romans because he wanted to look good in the eyes of Rome. And so we see in verse 1 of chapter 23, Then the whole multitude, so all of them, they arose and they led Jesus to Pilate. Now, understand, Pilate is the only one who possesses the authority to, to, to bring about capital punishment. And so they need Pilate. The, because if they didn't need Pilate, they probably would just crucify him themselves. But they can't do that. So they need Pilate's permission. Pilate is the only one that can order that. Then in verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, Well, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. And when Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. In other words, Pilate's conclusion is that Jesus and his followers don't pose any threat to Rome, which is really all he's worried about. But they were the more fierce, saying, well, he stirs up people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Ah, and when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew, uh, as soon as he knew that he, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who also was also in Jerusalem at the time. And so that was Pilate's escape route. You see, Pilate and Herod hated each other. They were enemies of one another. And this was uh, an easy way for Pilate to pass this problem off on Herod. And he recognized that he didn't get to where he was by being a stupid man. He recognized that this crowd was a little out of control and that they weren't really going to take no for an answer. And you notice that when they come to Pilate, they've sort of shifted gears. Now it's all about the the threat that he Jesus will be to Rome. They start talking about taxes and insurrection and all these other sorts of things when... You know, they're trying to, they're trying to twist around the, the statements of Jesus and, and make them in such a way that Pilate will react in the way in which they want him to react. But Pilate really doesn't want any part of this. This is nothing but trouble for him. And so when he hears the word Galilee, that's his escape route and he sends him to Herod. Now, 
This is Herod, and, and Herod was a tetrarch, and he was appointed by Rome. And he was a leader of Galilee. And remember, they hated each other. Really, Pilate had killed a group of Galileans, and that had really been the thing that set Herod and Pilate at, at odds with one another. And so they send him to Herod in verse 8. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Well, that's strange. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he'd hoped to see some miracles done by Jesus. Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, Herod with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been enemies of one another. And so we see Herod, who at first is excited and thinks, well, I've, I've heard all about Jesus. I've been waiting to, to see him. I want to see him do a miracle. I'm, this, is a, this is an exciting day. This is something, something good's going to happen. And so they, they bring bloody Jesus in and they plop him down before Herod. And Herod begins to question him, but Jesus won't answer him. Jesus really has nothing to say to him. And so here we see the prophecy fulfilled that the Messiah would stand in judgment before the Gentiles. And so he's already been judged by his own people. He's already been judged by the Jews. Now he's being judged by the Gentiles. And so he's sitting there and he's silent. And so out of frustration, he realized as the chief priests begin to vehemently accuse him, they begin to stir up everything again and get it all going again. They begin to mock him and treat him with contempt. And so they dress him up. And probably with with laughter and all sorts of coarse language, they send him back to Pilate. Isn't it interesting that prior to Jesus, the Sanhedrin's made up of two groups of people that utterly hate each other. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were so divided theologically, they had such problems with one another. The Sadducees saw themselves as far superior over the Pharisees. There was constant tension, constant disagreement. Now suddenly they're in full agreement and working in utter and complete uh, cooperation as they uh, work together to beat Jesus and to parade him around and, 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 and pull off this phony trial. And then also you see the unification of these other two adversaries and Pilate and Herod. And suddenly with Jesus, the enemies begin to not just work together, but become friends, the Scripture says, with one another. And it just shows that the, the cruelty and the coercion and the corruption that Jesus is facing. But I want you to see the, the confidence. Because really, I think verse 9 in chapter 23 is one of the most astonishing verses in all the Scripture. That here is the King of the universe sitting Silently, as they mock him and as they dress him up, as the blood just drips from his face, as the physical pain that he's enduring must be unbearable, why does Jesus sit silent in the face of such injustice? My mind cannot get around the gravity of this injustice. 
But you have to understand a little bit about Jesus to understand where such confidence could come from. Because his silence is not silence in weakness. His silence is silence in confidence in his heavenly father. That he knows the one whom sent him. He knows the one whom he's come to to complete this mission for. He knows that the God of Scripture in Exodus 14 says, The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. He knows the God of Psalm 94 where the Scripture says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. He knows that his heavenly Father... His heavenly Father is the God of vengeance and justice. He knows that. No one knows the character and nature of God better than Jesus because He is God. And so as a member of the the Trinity, as one who has spent all eternity in the perfect relational love of the intra-Trinitarian relationship that He shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He recognizes the greatness of God the Father. And what holds Him silent, what keeps Him there, is the obedience and trust and confidence in a God who always does what He says He's going to do. A God who never misses anything. A God who will not forget, will not overlook, will not miss any details. And Jesus is teaching us something this morning about how we are to respond when we feel vengeance creeping up in our heart. You see, when we're hurt, when we're deeply wounded, there's something in us, as we've already established, that desires to make someone pay. Because we're created in the image of a God of vengeance. But it's not our place to execute that vengeance. It's our place to trust and have utter and complete confidence in our Heavenly Father to do exactly as He says He would do. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 9, talking about relationships and the struggles that come in human relationships. And he says in verse 19, repay no one evil for evil. He just makes this little statement. He just says, you know, when when evil comes your way, when evil is perpetrated against you, don't repay with evil. Don't do that. Do as the Lord Jesus did. Just refrain from allowing your heart to wrap around some flesh-centered human vengeance and allow the Lord God who promises to take care, take care. But here's what Paul goes on to say two verses later in verse 19. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Can I just say something to some of you here this morning? That what that passage of Scripture is saying to you, maybe what is going on in your life right now is that you are dealing with this very issue right now in your life. There's a, there's a vengeful place in your heart that's, that's unresolved because of some evil that's been perpetrated against you. And I want you to see that what Paul says here is not to avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. What you need to hear this morning is that maybe the reason why you have been unable to get past this is because you have, there's, no, there's no space for God to work. You need to 
give space for the wrath of God and God's ways and God's plan and God's purpose to take effect in your life. You see, when we feel wounded and vengeance takes over our hearts, we cling so tightly to that situation that nothing can fit in between it. And I think what Paul's telling us is to push back and to let, let space exist between you and whatever has hurt you. And allow God to come and work in that place in your heart and in your circumstances and in your situation. You see, really, the root of all sin is unbelief. And what causes us to not be able to let go is that we're just not sure that God really will do what He says He will do. We're not sure that God really is who He says He is. But Jesus doesn't have that problem because He knows intimately and personally that His heavenly Father would do exactly what He said He would do. And so when the, when the Scripture says, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 46 to be still and know that I am God, Maybe it's in a place of deep wound and hurt, in a place of vengeful feelings where we need to back away and give space and just be still and know that He is God. You know, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, For what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? In other words, if you do stupid things and it causes bad things to happen to you in your life, and you take it patiently, well, what good is that? But he goes on to say, but when you do good and suffer, if you then take it patiently, this is commendable before God. You know, Peter is illustrating this very point to us. That you see, when we're, when we're persecuted for doing good, when, we, when we, we need to learn to suffer as believers, Peter goes on to say in the very next verse that, that suffering is what we've been called to and that we need to respond to our suffering by following the example of Jesus Christ. And the example is Jesus in His greatest moment of agony and suffering, silently refusing to respond to nonsensical circumstances and situations. You notice that Jesus did respond when they challenged Him on whether or not He was God. He responded. But when it came to all the dog and pony show about all the things about Rome and all the nonsense, and if you read the other, uh, the other gospel writers, if you look at, at what's in uh, Mark chapter 15 or Matthew chapter 27, if you, if you read the other accounts, what you get is the fullness of all this. You begin to realize the, the gravity and the scope of all this, and you, you realize that what they're saying is ridiculous. That when they begin to challenge Jesus about, well, he said he was going to tear down the temple in three days, he just doesn't even respond. Because that's not what he was talking about. He meant this temple, not this temple. And he just sits patiently. Maybe this morning, the challenge for us is to trust in the Word of Isaiah 54, where the Scripture says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. 
that that promise is true for us this morning. And that we as Christ followers need to have confidence in a God who endured a beating of this magnitude, who endured this mocking and jeering in order to rescue a people. Now listen, if if God the Son endures this in order to rescue a people who today would call themselves his sons and his daughters... What on earth would, would, would twist our heart into believing that somehow the very same God would somehow not hold up His end of the bargain on any other promise that He's made? We need to have confidence in the reality of who God says that He is and His nature and His character. And I just want you to understand that, that the feeling of vengeance is not wrong. But the execution of vengeance is. And that the feeling of vengeance, that desire within you to see justice, understand where that comes from. But it's not for you and me to be the the people that see that justice uh, come about. And so we see the cruelty, the coercion, the corruption. And we see Jesus' confidence. And then finally, I want you to see the consequences. You know, the consequences are really wrapped up in the story within the story here. I mean, there, there's so many, there's so many things that are happening within the, the, the verses of what Luke depicts. And, and by looking at all of the other gospel writers and pulling this picture together, you begin to realize the nuances that are really happening here. And one of which is, is that you really have to stop and, and, and settle in for a second and just think. These atrocities are being committed by ultra-religious people. I mean, just think this through. These are, these are people who, who sit in church. These are people who, who don't just read the Bible, they memorize the Bible. These are people who, who walk around and parade themselves as godly and righteous and, and holy. They're the, the, the very religious people that all of the, the non-religious people would look up to as an example of what to do, of how to live. You know, people can be very religious and not know Jesus. People can even know the Bible and have no concept of who Jesus is. You can devote huge chunks of your life to sitting in church and listening to sermons and going to Sunday school classes and carrying a Bible around and Never know Jesus personally. You really have to get your head wrapped around the the level of blindness it takes to miss Jesus as the Messiah. You see, Herod, for example, why was he so glad to see Jesus? He said, I'm so glad to see you. I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. I was hoping that I might be able to see a miracle. You see, there's a history with Herod and Jesus. That all the way back in Mark chapter 6, 
when Herod had come in contact with John the Baptist. And he was uh, astonished by the teaching of John the Baptist. In fact, he was enamored by the teaching of John the Baptist. He, he before he killed John the Baptist, he, he had great respect for John the Baptist and for what John the Baptist was doing. In Mark chapter 6, verse 20, the Bible says that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man and that he, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and he, he heard him gladly. In other words, when John spoke, Herod listened. What the Scripture tells us is that Herod's heart was tender towards the things of God. That there was a time in Herod's life when he was thinking, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's something to all this. I mean, this, this John guy, he's, he's, he's an amazing guy. And he's going around, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And meanwhile, Jesus is going around and all these miracles are happening. And, and he's performing all these unexplainable things. And, you know, there might be something to this. But boy, we've come a long way from Mark chapter 6 by the time we get to Luke 23. They bring... A bloody Jesus before Herod. And the man who once had a tender heart towards God begins to mistreat him and mock him and and dress him up like some kind of circus clown and abuse him and berate him. I think that there's a warning in that for us this morning. The warning is this. There's not a... Time that passes when we assemble together. When there's not people in this room who would say, you know, today my heart is tender towards God. I mean, you wouldn't be here this morning if there wasn't some tenderness in your heart towards God. You know, maybe you're here just thinking, well, you know, I've got to figure this thing out. Maybe you're, you, you've been in church for a long, long time. And you've been struggling and deep down, you, you think, I, I, I just don't think I'm saved. But you push that away because you think, but my heart's tender towards God. But you see, Herod didn't respond when his heart was tender. And when he came back around, and he actually had an, another opportunity to meet Jesus, his heart was not in a position to receive him. What I want you to hear this morning, beloved, is that there is no guarantee of tomorrow. That so oftentimes what we think is, I'm just going to put this off until a later day. I'm just going to, I'm just going to push this back until, till I get some other things sorted out in my life. I'm going to, I'm just going to wait until I'm, I'm, I'm past this season of my life. And maybe when I get older someday, then I'll become a Christian or then I'll be saved. That's a dangerous game to play with God. If your heart is tender towards God, it's because God has allowed that to be so. He's calling you unto Himself. And I just want to plead with you. Don't make the mistake of these men. I mean, maybe some of you would even say, 
You know, I, I have seen God. The reason my heart is tender towards God, I've seen God transform my wife or my children or, or my, my neighbors or whoever's invited me to church. I've seen God work in the lives of people around me. I've seen my son or my daughter be changed by God. They're different people. They're, they, they carry themselves differently. Their priorities are different. You've seen the work of God around you and yet somehow you Miss the reality that God's inviting you to come. Listen, the people who were committing this atrocity were the most religious people on the planet. That they didn't just miss the fact that Jesus showed up and said He was God. That that they didn't just miss a couple things. They knew... That the Messiah would be born of a woman from Genesis chapter 3. They knew that he'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. They knew that he'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. They knew the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12. They knew that the Messiah would come as a descendant of Isaac, Genesis 17. That he'd be a descendant of Jacob, Numbers 24. That the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. That the messenger of God would be sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, Isaiah 40, that the Messiah would be rejected by his very own people, Isaiah 53, that the one that God sends would be declared as the son of God, Psalm chapter two, that the Messiah would be a man from a Nazarene, Isaiah 11, that he would be he would bring light unto the people of Galilee on Isaiah chapter nine, that the Messiah would speak in parables, Psalm 78, that the Messiah would be called a king, Zechariah 9, 9, that the Messiah, the Messiah would be praised by even the little children in Psalm chapter 8, that the Messiah would be betrayed by His very own people, Zechariah 11, that the one God would send as the Savior of the world would be falsely accused in Psalm 35, that He would sit silent before His very accusers, Isaiah 53, and that the very one that they spat upon and that they struck was prophesied Hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 50, that they had overlooked not one, not two, but multitudes of evidence of the power of God right before them. And they missed it. And how many people today miss it? You see God working around you. You cannot explain any other way the transformation of people right around you. Do not allow yourself to be deceived that there just may be some, some day in the future when you will surrender to the king. You got to come to the door while he's knocking. Don't miss the overwhelming Evidence that Jesus is God. And when He says He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him, He means it. And the reason that our hearts are tender towards God is because God is tender towards us. So this morning, would you please... Please, with fresh eyes, recognize afresh and anew what our Savior endured to rescue His people. Don't miss it.
What a God we serve. Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, Lord. And as painful as it is for us to read about you being beaten and mocked and scorned. Father, at the same time, our hearts are filled with gratitude. Thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. The sacrifice that gave us life. The hope that is within us, Lord, is because of the confidence that you have in your heavenly Father. And so, Lord, there are people in this room today who need to rest in the confidence of who you are. They've been hurt. They've been wounded. And Lord, they need space for you to do your perfect work. And so, Father, I pray that they'll be still and they'll have confidence and know that you are God. And Lord God, for some in this room today marks a very important moment in their life. It's a reminder of how blind our hearts can be to the reality that's around us, Lord. And then help us not to play games anymore and to just confess, yes, there's a multitude of things I don't understand. But in the midst of all the things I don't understand, there's the evidence I can't explain. And so, Lord, call them unto you this morning. Call your children to a place of confidence. Call those who need to know you as Savior to a place of obedience, to a place of trust. Lord, work in our hearts this morning. And call us unto you. For those who need to follow you and be obedient and be baptized, they need to come and just say, I'm a Christian. I need to be baptized. Praise God. I've seen the work of God around me. Today is the day that I respond to the call of God on my heart while he's knocking. And we'll give you glory, Lord, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. You.